Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. This is freaking cool. Yeah. You're like, I had my dream list of guests I wanted to have on the uh, podcast. James Casey was the first name I wrote down. Uh, I I love it. I appreciate you inviting me to come on to it. I don't, you know, I'm don't not able to come to Houston very much. So when I do come into Houston, you're first guy call and see what you're doing and hang out. That's really cool. So let's go through the resume. The resume is Azel High School minor league baseball player, two years at Rice University, drafted by the Texans in the fifth round. Were you three years at the Texans or four? Four years. Four years at yeah. the Texans and what, two years in Philadelphia? Two in Philadelphia. I tried to yeah. blank those out. I'm a yeah. Cowboys fan, yeah. so I had to blank out you being the Eagles. Yeah. Then one year with Denver, and you've been coaching ever since. U of H, and now you're the tight ends coach of the Cincinnati Bengals. Yeah, so yeah, been very fortunate and been knowing you ever since the rice days and remember getting released from the eagles and coming back home to houston and having a nice glass nice bottle of wine with you we did we did did. so let let's start let's start here um the super bowl y'all just played in the super bowl what was that like it's you know you you dream about the super bowl as a kid you want to you want to always get to the super bowl and and it was an amazing hell of a year that we had with the with the Bengals this year. Not, you know, we all you know, you're always confident knowing the you know, expecting to have a really good team this year. But, you know, Joe Burrow obviously is a big part of that with us getting there. But just the whole, you know, playoff run, you know, beating the teams we did and beating Kansas City and then getting to the Super Bowl and just the excitement with the team and the family and it's you know, it's just like I dreamed about. But it's I wish I could have done it as a player, but second best thing was to was to do it as a coach and just the whole atmosphere and you know Jay Z's walking behind us on the on the the bench pregame and the amount of people and just you know how many people are watching that game and how much is riding on it and I mean we just we couldn't you know it sucks that we lost the game but it was still an amazing experience and then you know me personally it's just all the family that was able to go and experience that whole week in L A and we had a, we were at the UCLA's campus so we had. Our hotel was right next to the our practice facility, so we got to experience the LA lifestyle for a little bit, and it was a uh, it was it was amazing. I mean, it, it was expensive because I had you know all my family was going, <laughs> and you I think they and give suddenly you, they expect you to pay. Oh yeah, and I was willing to. I, I wasn't expecting anybody to fly out to LA and pay for everything themselves because it's so expensive. But I think I had you get fifteen tickets, and you know I used all my tickets for fam- friends and family, and hotels and so by the end of it you know you you're end up you know spending a bunch of money but you're also getting the extra check for the super bowl so it was i think i just now finished paying all those tickets off because it, it was kind of taken out of my salary you know from every whatever every month so it's finally paid off but it was it was more than worth it though it was a an amazing experience so two things about the Bengals this year one is joe really as cool as he seems yes yeah he, yeah he is uh unbelievable demeanor like he's the real deal all the intangibles that you want out of a player like he's you know he's never rattled and he is you know of course very confident and he's also got a, you know, like one of the best thing has just that he's got a killer instinct like he's holds guys accountable but when it's time to like make the big play and you know he wants to 
he wants to bury teams and bury play. He wants to be that guy that is the one that everybody's looking at to make those plays. And he, I mean, it's amazing to be, it's, you know, for a, from my coaching perspective and me trying to grow as a coach and, you know, try to get to coordinator head coaching job one day, like it's been great to be around Burrow and just be able to see how he is to see what it, you know, what that guy looks like. And also our head coach, Zach Taylor in Cincinnati is very similar to Joe. Like, you know, they're real calm and they're always the same, always poised, never flustered. They're the same guy every single day. And it's, it's a, I mean, I'm fortunate just to be around, you know, Zach Taylor, our head coach. And then of course, NFL, any football, it's all about the quarterback. So you, you know, sometimes you get lucky and you get that one quarterback and we're all trying to ride his coattails now. Yeah, no, it's always, I always say that the quarterback gets way too much credit when they do well, way too much blame when they do poorly, but at the end of the day, no crappy quarterbacks go to the Super Bowl. Yeah, so, they, they I mean, get, you do. Yeah. They deserve the credit because the amount of, you know, just information they got to know, how smart they got to be, and just the the poise they got to have back there in big game. You know, because a lot of quarterbacks, you'll see they'll be really good, and all of a sudden they get to a big game or a crucial point of the game, and they make, you know, you know they can just consistently make those errors to not win those games late. And when you're playing in the, you know, like the playoffs and the AFC Championship game at ten, at Kansas City, and you're just there and you're feeling that environment, and it's it's a, it's amazing to watch a quarterback like Burrow that can go out there and be poised and make those plays and make those throws. He hit Jamar Chase on a corner route, you know, late in the game against Tennessee. That was, you know, like just the the amount of poise that he has to go out there and make those plays in those critical situations. It's easy to talk about doing those things, but right. to actually be in those moments and to feel what it's like and to feel the fans and the in the crowd and the know how much is. How many, how many how many people are counting and, and then to go out there and do it it's it's rare you know it's rare to have a you know have a guy like that and hopefully he does it for a long time for my sake and get, so I can keep my job for a while right. but just like Tom Brady it's you know it's 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 the amount of big games that he's been in and won and the and holding his teammates accountable it's very rare to have a guy like that yeah no it was funny Nate Newton used to always say. Before Emmett Smith, I was just a big old fat guy. Once Emmett Smith showed up, I was an all pro. That worked out. Yeah. So. That's that's me. We first two years in Cincinnati, we weren't great. You know, we had some, you know, a lot of a lot of deals, but you know, when you get a guy like Burrow and you know, it makes you look like a good coach too. So Well, and did y'all see when you're scouting him, are you able to tell the intangibles from all your background work, talking to coaches, talking to him? Can you See it, or to some degree, are you do you kind of get lucky with that? How much do you know versus versus you're able to tell? I, I can speak to the tight end position because I'm. The beautiful thing about the NFL is you're not recruiting like you do in college, and you're really just focused on your position group and you're evaluating the film. But you do get a you do, you can get a sense in my position for sure. I'm sure they I'm sure our head coach and our offense coordinator, our quarterbacks coach, did with Burrow, and it was kind of a no brainer. You know, even going in the draft just from all the reports of him and, and just, but you can, you can meet with them. You know, you can go to their college and talk to them. You, they have all kinds of psychological evaluations. They do. They, you can, you know, now you zoom, you can zoom meet with them. So you can get a good sense of a guy, just like we are talking to each other. Now you can, once you sit down and talk to a guy and you hear about him from everybody that's around him, you can get a real good sense of what kind of mindset and demeanor he has. Cause you know, one of the things I found interesting, so we'll get into this in just a second, but you and I met cause you went to rice and you were cool enough to let me go to the combine with you when you worked out at the NFL combine. And for people that haven't been to the NFL combine, it's one of the greatest sporting events for fans because it's not really a fan event. Nobody can go into Lucas stadium. Everybody that's running the 40 yard dash and all that, 
literally the only people sitting in there are coaches, GMs, and the like. So there aren't really fans there. That being said, everybody from the NFL is there. And if you're there as a fan, all the GMs want to talk to you. So, I mean, I, I met Belichick when yeah. I was there with you. He kind of pulled me aside. Oh, tell me about this Casey guy. So it was, it was wild. I mean, I wanted to say that three or four days we were there, I met two-thirds of the GMs, and they all wanted to talk to you because they're all like, why are you here? Yeah. Well, I'm here with James Casey. Oh, tell me about the kid. Well, you must not have made a great impression of Belichick because they didn't. I mean, I drafted them fifth round. They didn't take me. Yeah, and they kept like, trading up in that uh, draft, or they make uh, they would trade down. I kept going, okay, this is it. Yeah, so I sucked. Sorry. Well, that's one of the, the things I'm most proud of, though, is I wasn't drafted until the fifth round. And, you know, like I don't know which number of tight end I was, but I was down the list of tight ends that were drafted that year. But, I, you know, I outlasted a lot of those guys playing-wise, being able to play seven years. And that's, you know, we talk about you can get a good sense of a guy when you're talking to him and – and you kind of see what his, you know, his attitude is and talking to other people. But you can't – it's hard to really tell, like, how somebody's going to react when they actually do get into an NFL locker room and they're, you know, playing in NFL games and learning NFL offense or defense. That's that's a harder sense to to judge how they're going to react to the and getting that money. Yeah. And, you know, if they're going to start getting full themselves or, you know, getting entitled a little bit. But speaking of the combine, yeah, it was it's a – unbelievable experience and now they do let fans in just changed uh oh, did they yeah, really? this year. i think there was like ten thousand people this year it was a it was much different this year going to the combine they you know as a coach i'm just there really just kind of sitting around like watching the players and interviewing them and talking to them but when it gets to the actual drills on the field you're really you're sitting in the stands like a fan just kind of watching them and really trying to watch kind of what they're doing in between drills or you know you're just you know kind of some of it's just coach speak you're really just kind of watching it but you kind of already know a good amount, but there was like 10,000 people and they were playing music and a little bit this year. So they kind of, they're trying, you can see now they're the NFL, it's all about money and they're trying to create like fans can come in and try to create some entertainment value to it now. So it's probably not going to be like it was back then anymore. They're going to try to make it a big deal. Man, that was so great. We, uh, cause that was back when I got introduced to St. Elmo's Steakhouse. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. I think we went to dinner. Didn't we go to yeah, dinner yeah, one yeah, night? Yeah. The tomahawk steak. Yeah. Didn't you get the tomahawk uh, ribeye? Yeah. And the, what was it? The shrimp cocktail thing? The like shrimp that? cocktail yeah. with, the, with yeah. all the yeah. horseradish yeah. stuff on yeah. it. That was yeah. crazy. But, I still remember that because now I go back as a coach to the combine and I'm, you know, just I'm part of it, like working it. So now I'm still going to some of these places and just still remember. I always remember, of course, your playing career. And back in 2009, when we were, I went through that. And then hanging out with you and just the stress that was involved with that and just how, how you kind of – as a player, you're hanging on every little bitty thing and you're trying to get drafted as high as you can. And, you know, looking back, I wish I could have relaxed a little bit and yeah. maybe I had a little performed a little bit better than I did. Well, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, you've got that weird stuff of you got to make a certain weight, but then you got to go run the 40 and, yeah. Yeah, it's – and now as a coach, you see the players, I mean – I mean, I got two boys now that are 12 and 8, and the amount of stuff that goes into these athletes now, like now when the players get there, you can – someone will be like at midnight, like in the in the hotel, like doing like little drills to try to like – not you know, but try like warm-up things. Yeah. To try to – whatever they're doing to maximize how fast they're going to run that next day. Like they'll be – you'll see them like doing little whatever, like they'll be, you know, doing stretches or some weird things up and down the hall. They all got like personal trainers that are out there like working working with them like throughout the whole time. And it's a really stressful environment for the players because they got MRIs. And like you said, I don't, know, I don't know if people really understand how much goes into that combine with their, the players are like doing stuff nonstop throughout the whole thing. And 
there's so, I mean, it's the biggest job interview in the world. There's so much money at stake for these guys of how they perform. Like there's a lot that goes into what they do for that one day on the field. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous that literally a lineman can make $250,000 by running a five one instead of a five three, you know, I've always, everything's so particular NFL wise because everybody's really good really good coaches, really good players. And sometimes the difference is like size and length and, and drafting wise, if you're going to draft a guy and you're going to miss on a guy, you'd rather miss on a guy that has the, the measurables, the big, you know, cause those are the guys that potentially can turn into the superstars. And it's, <clears throat> that's what hurt me in the draft. Cause I would, I didn't have like the unbelievable measurables. I'm only six, three, I had really short arms. So I've, you fall in the draft just cause there's more, you know, that they would rather, and a lot of us just covering their own, ass a little bit as NFL teams because if you draft a guy that's got the prototype size and speed and all that stuff and he doesn't pan out like as a scouting department you're you know you're saying well he I mean he had all the intangibles you just didn't right. make him better you know yeah no you do that I mean we used to say managing money you know half of our job is to make money the other half of it is to not look stupid yeah and if you go out there and say okay I'm gonna draft a 6'3 225 pound tight end because we're gonna be able to put bulk on him he's got short arms and he doesn't pan out you just look stupid yeah you that, know? it is that but and they draft the same way it's like you want to hit on everyone and you want to you know get the superstars the pro bowlers but more importantly is you don't want to completely miss on a guy because if you miss on a first second third round guy it really i mean that can that can kill your team because you're not you're, you're probably not going to release that guy because you're not going to spend that amount of money and then just release him a year or two so you really gotta you know but he's going to be on your roster and he's probably going to play especially if he's a first rounder so you really just you don't want to miss you know yeah. on the guy you'd rather you know as long as you get a good player you'll be all right so give me one draft wartime type story that people people would be surprised to hear it's it's strange as a, a coach in the nfl and because just assuming what you know what i thought would be the case is you go into the draft and it's draft day and you're the you're the coach you're the tight ends coach and it's like you know third round or whatever and they're drafting a tight end just the, the stories that it's not anything crazy because i also can't divulge you know too much of the sure, stuff yeah. too but it's like you may uh, the Bengals are a little different because we are involved a lot more as coaches with the scouting process because we don't have a lot of scouts. But a lot of teams, you know, you kind of give your reports on the guy and you rank all your guys and you say where you think they would get drafted in the rounds. But it's really the scouting department and the general managers are the ones that's making those picks. So you may have a guy ranked really far, really down the list, but, you know, they they don't. And you'll be watching, you'll just be watching the draft like any, anybody else. And they may draft the guy that you weren't a fan of, like, and you, that's the guy you got. <laughs> you can't. You, that's tear, why you yeah. tear, tear up that report. Yeah, like, well, Let's put yeah. that away. Then it would. I, mean, I haven't had that situation, but I've heard a bunch of stories like that. Like they didn't like a guy, and all of a sudden they drafted him in the third round, and they're like, well, you know, now now it's just you try to do your best, and you know, like anything, once you once you get the player in your room, like you're trying to do as much as you can to help him and make him the best player. But I I actually love how it is with the Bengals because we do have way more of a say so as far as evaluating because we. We only have like five, six scouts. So the coaching staff with the Bengals are a lot more involved in watching all the guys and giving reports on all the guys and ranking all the guys. And we work we work with our scouting department as opposed to other teams. The co- the position coach may only watch, may only be assigned to watch like five or six guys in their position and then go to a couple of pro days. And other than that, it's the scouting department that's watching all the guys and they're, they're going to be the ones making a decision. But so you just kind of get who you get on a lot of other teams. They don't, they don't have much say. 
a lot of other coaches. So uh, another fellow Rice guy, Will McClay, who works for the for the Cowboys, he was a cornerback at Rice back when I was there. And he's been a Dallas guy his whole career. He played for the arena team. He coached the arena team. The Jones family really likes uh, Will. Um, supposedly one of the things he's done, because he's taken over the draft, I guess, the last five or ten years, however long it's been, is he made all the scouts and the coaches get together for like day-long workshops of a coach saying, hey, here's what I use an outside linebacker for. I need this, this, and this, just so the scouts understand the system and can can take that into account when they're doing that's, it. That's really smart, and I don't think a lot of teams do do that. I think that's just the gen- – you know, it's kind of like every job. It's the ego stuff with some teams where you're there, the general manager, the scouting department, that, you know, they think they know best. And you're just a coach. You don't you don't know how to evaluate guys. You just you just coach the guy. You don't know how to coach. But we do the same thing though. We we have like we make like profile tapes of our position and what we what we do offensively, you know, and the things that we're gonna ask them to do during the season, and then we'll send it to the scouts so they can kind of know exactly what we're looking for in a guy. And we also have, you know, we write up, we we write up reports on what our position entails as a coach, like your, you know, height, weight stuff that you're looking for, the speed you're looking for, the you know, the attributes that you're looking for and the, you know, the even mindset stuff. I'm looking for a guy that's like, you know, has this kind of mindset, smart, tough, all, all whatever it is. And we'll, we'll, so that everybody can see that and look at what the coach is, is thinking when they're coaching the guy, because we're going to be the guy working with the guy. And yeah, some guys may look beautiful out there and run fast and all that stuff. But if, especially that tight end, if they're not very smart, it's going to be really tough because there's a lot of stuff you got to know as a tight end. And if they're, if they don't have, you know, short area quickness. It's going to be really tough to be a good tight end. So sometimes that stuff gets lost on in certain teams. And that's why, some, you know, the draft is not an exact science. And it's it's tough to – all these things that go into it to get the right guy. And some years there just may not be, you know, a, a, a decent amount of guys at that position either. So it's, it's kind of year to year as well. I think it's great. While we, what we do is the coaches work with the scouting department to – and they listen to us and we, and we give our reports on every single guy with everybody in the heroes talk about each one of the guys. And so I think we're, I think over the last couple of years, I think we've been pretty good. And I think, you know, we'll continue to hopefully be really good with the Bengals just because we work together well. And there's no, there's not a lot of ego involved with our team. And Mr. Brown's awesome with the, with the Bengals. Cause he's, you know, he's, he's still involved in the process as the owner. He's there at every practice. He sees us practicing. So he's really, I don't know, like Jerry Jones with Dallas is like that too, but, and I don't know how all this stuff works there, but I know Mr. Brown is like, he pays attention. Like he's watching, he's listening to the coaches and he doesn't have a big ego. He's a real modest guy. And he's been, it's been really in the history of, you know, Paul Brown and, oh, absolutely. And, and Mr. Brown being his son. Like, it's just, I don't think Paul Brown gets enough credit as what he should as a, you know, all the stuff that he invented and how big he was in football. Oh yeah. All the stuff that he did. No, there's a, there's a phenomenal amount of history there. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was interesting that you guys are doing it that way because you're too young to remember this, but back in kind of the the Tom Landry days, I think the the 60s and the 70s, the Cowboys got credit for being these this great drafter because of the computer. They yeah. used the computer. Gil Brandt, I think. Yeah, yeah Gil yeah, Brandt was. Yeah. And and really the the beauty behind the computer was not that it had an algorithm. You put in certain measurements and it spit out this is a great player. Actually, what the computer did was 
because everybody ran their scouting department back then by region. So you had a guy in Florida, you had a guy in Texas, and that guy would look at all the players. And what the computer did is it took everybody's rankings and then it measured those players three and five years later in their NFL career. And what it found was the guy in Texas was, wasn't necessarily a great evaluator of talent for every position, but he was really good at running backs. And the guy in Florida would be really good at quarterbacks and wide receivers. And so what the Cowboys started doing early on is taking tape and they would make all their scouts watch all the tape. And then they would wait if the guy in Texas, who's good at running backs, they'd give his vote more weight in the final rankings of all the players. And so it was really just ranking the scouts. Okay, how well did these guys do? And what they found out was people did a much better job by position as opposed to by geography. But you did it by geography just because you couldn't afford to fly people all over the place. Yeah, that's and that's fascinating. You're teaching yeah. me some things. Like that's the same same thing now with our our scouting department. We you know they have areas, but they're also assigned to certain positions, which, you know, that's good just to hear the kind of the history of it. But now with the computers, it's, you know, it's extremely advanced, all the stuff we can find out about players and the personality tests. And also just with through PFF, the pro football focus, I mean, you can, if I'm watching a tight end, I can, there's all these different cutups I can make. And I could look at every time, you know, he was in a three-point stance on the right side. Every time he was, every time he dropped a pass, every time he broke a tackle. I mean, every time he got a penalty, I mean, you can look at anything you want to about the player and you can watch cutups, which is just, you know, plays of one particular thing. Every time he was on the, on the play side of a zone run scheme, you can, every time he was in gap scheme front side, like you can, so it's much easier now as a coach to like really specifically watch certain scenarios. Every time he was in pass protection, like quarterbacks, I mean, there's, you can watch anything you want to every third down incomplete, every interception, all, all that stuff. It's, we can get very detailed in what we're watching. You know, there are two great examples of that in history. One, I think it was when Steve Mariucci became the offensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. I think I'm right about the coach. But anyway, he just went and he watched every single play that Joe Montana threw an interception on. And he noticed that 80% of the time when Joe Montana threw an interception, it was based on two play calls. So he just got rid of them in the playbook. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was literally as simple as just we're gonna, we're, we're never gonna go call those two plays. And next year, Joe Montana, I think, threw four interceptions. Or you know, that's yeah, that's fascinating too. And that's just I, every time you're telling the kind of like with Burrow and our head coach Zach Taylor, it's, it's the same kind of deal with them. Like we'll be in the offensive install meetings and we're installing the plays, and you know, it's almost like Burrow's a coach as well, even though he's a young player because. You know, he Zach may say something, install a play or something, and then he'll ask Burrow about his, you know, a certain thing about what he likes or don't like. And there's, a, you know, getting input from the player because they're the ones out there doing it, and you want to make sure they have confidence in the plays that they're running. And certain things Burrow doesn't like doing. He doesn't like certain play concepts, and he'll voice that, and then we just don't run that play. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the other great example, too, was Penn State upset Miami in the Fiesta Bowl, and that was back when Vinny Testaverde – was the Heisman winning uh, quarterback for Miami. And Joe Paterno was sitting there watching tape and supposedly 18 hours into watching tape, he noticed that anytime there was a third down and it was an important type play, Vinny Testaverde would look at his primary target 
while calling the signals. So he'd be like, you know, ready. And he'd look over at whoever the wide receiver was that was the primary set hike and then run the play. And so Paterno installed that or told his defense about that. And, you know, they'd sit there at the line and, they, you know, Tess would be ready and he'd look over and they'd just shift. That would be the double coverage. And it's, it's, it's yeah. all just finding the tendencies yeah. on tape. It's, it's fascinating just being in it and being the coach and just seeing being a coach in the NFL and just it's a, you know one of the biggest stages in the world. There's, it's a billion-dollar industry. Just seeing how much goes into the preparation for a game. Like even like our, that stuff happens all the time with us. Like now you, have, you can watch the TV copy of every game on, on our computer system. We have DV Sports, so you can watch the, the play that's filmed from our, you know, our filming department from a bunch of different angles and you watch the different angles of the play. And then you can also watch the, the TV copy of that play. So you can hear, you know, a lot of times now with the sound, you can hear a lot of stuff on the, on the TV, you know, as you, so we're, we have guys that are just, and every team does, you know, Patriots are famous for it, but you're just listening for certain calls. You know, the center may be making at the line of scrimmage or the, what the quarterback saying, and you can pick up a lot of things each game on what you, what you're kind of anticipating happening. And every team's doing that. So you just, you just gotta be smart as, as, our team of knowing that if we do have tendencies or we're saying certain things, we got to be changing it up. And, but you know, you don't just the pre the pre the amount of work that goes into the pre-snap and the communication is, is it's fascinating how much go, it's any industry. You know, I'm sure with, right. with oil and gas stuff, it's the same way. Like people, the people that aren't in it, it's hard to really understand like how much goes into each play and how specific everything needs to be and how critical, especially NFL, you get 60, 70 plays and how important every single play is. And, to win games in the NFL and how hard it is you you the amount of work that goes into each play trying to get their tendencies and try not to have your own tendencies and it's a a lot of mental stuff is going into each play yeah and it's 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 wild for me listening to a really good analyst like listening to Romo where they'll run a replay and it's like see how they had the guard pull on these five plays it's setting up this play, you know, when they, when, so they're, they're expecting the guard to pull and he doesn't pull or whatever. It's amazing the chess match there. Cause it's not just, okay, we run this play. It's like, we've set this play up for the last, you know, and you're saying it's even games. We did that in week three to set this play up in week seven. Oh yeah. It's everything is extremely specific and you're, you're trying like the really good offenses and really good teams, like they have a system. So you, they'll run a certain, they'll run certain plays, they have things that they can hang their hat on and that like ours is, you know, under center wide zone. Like that's what we, we run. And off of that, we have play actions and, you know, keepers and screens. And, but you're, as you run each play, you're, and we get these pitchers on the sidelines. So you can see what the defense is doing. You're trying to, you're trying to set up certain things later on in the game and even later on in the season. And you're also just, the the pitchers you can see exactly what the defense is doing on the sideline that you get so you're you know you you may see a linebacker and in out of position on a certain play and that then you'll come back to that same play and then you're trying to you know take advantage of that but the defense is smart too so they'll change their defenses too so it's it's a it's a chess match all, all the time and it's you know we had a couple plays this year against like the Ravens where Burrow you know he would have a signal in the backfield to change a route on a blitz package and. We, we did it a couple of times earlier in the year and we knew Wink Martindale with the Ravens was really going to be tied into that signal. And we knew they blitzed a lot. So we were, we called the play and it was, you know, he was signaling as if it was going to be that play that we always do, but it was a fake signal. 
and they jumped the route and we hit, we hit uh, CJ Uzama on a, on a touchdown on a big play like that. Like the amount, like that was one of the, you know, those things are just like, that's what's fun about coaching. Cause you, you know, you get the defense and you get their coaching staff on a play that it was really all, you know, it's all about coaching. Like we set them up on a certain play and fake signal to them and then hit them for a touchdown. You know, Vince Lombardi back in the day sent the Green Bay Packers playbook to every other team uh, during a summer camp and would just say, hey, guys, here's the plays we're going to run, just so you know. Wow. Isn't that yeah. wild how that's, far we've come? That, yeah, that's there's all these stories about, you know, teams leaving out their their playbooks after, the, you know, or their, their, their scheme after the game. You go through the locker room and you get their scheme. So next time you play them, you save it all because – you're going to be playing those teams down the road, so you, you want to know as much information as possible. And also teams like – I think like – I think it might have been Mike Leach is like famous for like – you know, because you script out the first 15 plays usually right. of what you're going to run. But famously like as they walk through the stadium before the game, like he left out a fake first 15 plays, and then whoever they were playing got in. It was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be a, a bubble the first play, and they ran like a bubble and go. So he like – he set them up by sending a fake uh, – he set out a fake diagram of the first 15 plays, and then they – they ran opposite of what it said, basically on that on that sheet. Which and the, Al, the gamesmanship. Oh, and Al Davis back in the day, if if he was playing a team and they had recently cut somebody, he'd always sign them for a day, scrub them down, and then cut them. Yeah, that's, yeah, that happens all the time, like with quarterbacks or linebackers, where you're you're playing a certain team, and or you may have that guy on your roster who was at that team the last season, and you you know you'll you don't you know you're you're not trying to be manipulative or anything but you're you're you mean if you're playing the team and it's a big game like you want to learn as much information as possible and what their calls are and what their thought process is and well and if you're the player you want a paycheck yeah so i mean i i'd kind of you know they're I the mean, ones paying you yeah if you in, want, if they in want cap to calls yeah. me after yeah. kane booted me yeah. i'm gonna sing my yeah. uh sing my guts out <laughs> i played that my last year was with the broncos with peyton manning they they want to we won a super bowl i was i got fired before the fifth game because uh i was old and my just couldn't run very well anymore and that was my last year but being with Peyton Manning it was fascinating just to see how he operates. And he would have his own meetings with the players and the skill position guys before our regular meetings. And he would go through like two minute offense stuff where, where we're signaling and we're calling plays. And, but he would, he would only allow the people that were, that were going to be in the game in those meetings, like even the, like the practice squad guys and even coaches wouldn't be in that meeting. Cause he really wanted to keep everything like really secret. And so he would be really detailed on like what his signals were going to be and what his calls were going to be at the line of scrimmage making sure that the other team didn't have any advantage knowing it. And then if we ever played a team, you know, like within your division, you're playing them the second time, he would always be real detailed on watching the TV copy himself and like hearing what he's saying and seeing what he looks like and to try to do those same things and run a different play, you know, just the amount of like attention and detail that he had was, was fascinating. They say Brady was the, Brady's the same way too, that Brady's in there meeting with the offensive coordinator, just him and the offensive coordinator – Going yeah. through all those things. Yeah, they, you know, the NFL gets a bad rap sometimes because of the, the superstar players that, you know, maybe have big egos or get in trouble. But a lot of the NFL's guys are just, or, you know, they're, a lot of these guys are really smart and they work really hard. And it's like any job. I mean, they're in there nonstop, like studying, trying to get any advantage they can. Because, you know, a lot of money is at stake, but the amount of work that goes into each game and the amount, like special teams wise, like these guys probably never, like me, like, most people would have no idea who I was, who I was, but I played seven years in the NFL and just, I wasn't the ego type guy. You know, I was in there studying trying to get, do everything I possibly could to gain an advantage for that game and play as long as I could. That's amazing. 
Hey, let's let's do this because I think you have literally the most amazing human story. Uh, so I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you about it. Take me back to Azel in high school and take me back to your junior year in high school. You mind talking about that? No, yeah. I, you know, I don't talk about it often, but I have no problems talking about it. The, just because, you know, my mother passed away when I was a sophomore in high school. Oh, it's sophomore yeah, year. Yeah. And, you know, that there were, because I don't know who's listening to this, but if there's somebody listening to it, that maybe, you know, everybody has some bad things happen or some tragedies. And I was, uh, I grew up in hardly any money at all, real poor, like, you know, living in a trailer. And, but the biggest thing happened was my sophomore year, I was at school. My mother worked nights in like cleaning houses. And so she came home and she slept during the day. But I was at school in biology class and, uh, I think it was just a student came in with a little sheet says, you need to go to the office. And as I go to the office, like I have a, a, ha a half brother and he was standing there and he was just told me like, right when I got there, he said the trailer burned down and your mom was inside. So like immediately, you know, like whole life changed. And so I'm, I leave biology class. I go, my, he says, your, your trailer burned down, your mom's inside. So, you know, I get in the truck with him and we drive to the, to where I was living and it's still like smoking. And my mom, my mom was inside and that trailer burned down. I literally lost everything. And of course that's, you know, crushing and there's, you know, not a lot of good things coming out of that. And, but I was real down, you know, felt terrible. Of course, you know, it's like, why, you know, why me? Like the, why does, you know, like, I'm sure certain people in that situation may just say, you know, screw it and just give up or turn to drugs or just whatever. But I was, you know, for like four or five days, you know, of course I was crushed. My mom passed away. I lost literally everything I had besides the backpack and the clothes I was wearing. And my dad was there, but he was more of a hippie type type guy. Nothing, not a bad guy at all, but he wasn't the, you know, traditional responsible parent. So he was, he was, he was there, but it wasn't, you know, like he was just going to take care of me and whatever. And, but after those, you know, it was like four or five days and I was, of course, down and felt terrible. But then I finally just had an epiphany. It's like, you know, like, what am I going to do? You know, I can sit here and feel sorry for myself and just walk around crying and, you know, holding my head down. But or I can say, you know, what would my mom would have wanted? She Would she want me to just walk around sulking and feeling sorry for myself or would she want me to make something of myself? So I just once that happened, I was like, OK, well, I got to. I need to make something myself just, and I was always motivated, but then after that, I was even more motivated just to do whatever I could to be successful. And I was always good in school and sports. And a lot of my community helped me. Like they, you know, I grew up with hardly any money. So, I mean, after my mother passed away, like, uh, like a bunch of people like donated clothes and gave, gave me like some money, a little, like I kind of guess would be like a GoFundMe now situation. We didn't have that back then, but so they, so I said, just, you know, went back to school and just continue to make good grades and continue to do well in school. And then, you know, it's one of those things that sucks, but I know there's a lot of people that have bad things happen. And, I've, you know, now that I'm older and I've read a lot of things and thought through a lot of things, like it's, it's really just like, you know, like, yeah, bad things happen, but you can control the controllables, you know, like what can you control? Like your attitude, your effort, your, and, and how do you want to live? Do you want to just, what kind of person do you want to be like? What? So I, you know, like I've, fortunately I, that was a bad situation, but I still, you know, you don't get over that, but 
I was able to not just go completely downhill afterwards, which, you know, if everybody, if anybody is out there that's listening to this and they've had something really bad happen, like, doesn't mean that it's the end of your world. You know, like what would, what would the, whatever that bad thing, if it was a, if it was a person you knew that, that was, you know, that passed away, like what would they have wanted? And then that, that was kind of my, my process, my thought process was like, what would she have wanted me to do? What would, you know, and then after I thought about that, I was like, okay, I'm just, she'd want me to be successful, have a good life and have my own kids and all that stuff. So that's kind of my thought process yeah. has always been. And it, and it was amazing because you went and you played minor league baseball for five years, I think. Um, I think your quote was you couldn't hit the curveball or, or – I couldn't throw a strike. You like, couldn't yeah, throw a yeah, strike yeah. with your, with your curveball. But then came back to Rice, played football for two years – but you wound up graduating from Rice in what two and a half, three years? Six semesters, yeah, graduated. Yes. Yeah, six semesters, Rice yeah. with a three nine. It was, uh, yeah. I had well, I went downhill my GPA a little bit at the end because I had a kid, and but it was like a, my overall GPA I think was a three six four, and I graduated in six semesters and three majors and a minor. And but going back to my mom too was that once she passed away, like I had a lot of help too. Like I had. My wife now, we've been married 16 years. Like I started staying with her some. I had my athletic trainer and his wife, which is basically like my parents now. Like they let me start living with them because my dad was there, but he, we, he had even a worse trailer than what we had, than what we were living in with that burned down. So it's like I couldn't, it wasn't sustainable to stay there. And I had a lot of people helping me and, you know, like good people around you because no matter how hard you work or, you know, how good you are at certain things, you're going to need a lot of help you're going to need help. You need people to support you and be there and help you. And, and yeah, I mean, I was always a motivated person. And then, you know, after that happened, I was even more motivated. And then I had people around me helping me and just, and I've, I've, I've to this day, I'm still like that. Like I'm really motivated in whatever it is to try to be the best at it. Not just good. I want to be, you know, I only want to do anything unless I can try to be the best in the world at it. And I've just, really narrow focus on what I'm doing and trying to be really good at it. And just cause I don't want to let the people around me down. And I want to, I want to set an example for my kids to my boys. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but, um, you wrote me a note, um, when we, even before we'd met, um, cause you had the Chuck and Kim Yates scholarship at rice. That's how we uh, met the athletic department reached out and said, Hey, we got a special guy coming in. We think you would, you would pair really well with and the note laid out that story and i remember the line that you kind of closed it with something to the effect of no one will ever work harder than me on the field or off the the field you will never be embarrassed by anything i do and uh yeah i remember bawling uh bawling my eyes out reading that letter that was pretty powerful stuff and uh you're cool to tell that story because uh i brag on you every chance i get um, with that story. And it, it, it means a lot because it's really easy to go get drunk. You know, it's really easy to go buy drugs. It's really easy to say, screw it and just give up. And you, you didn't. Yeah. I, I appreciate you telling, I mean, I remember that vaguely. I don't remember exactly what I said, but when I came to Rice after, you know, I grew up really poor and I played minor league baseball, but it wasn't like I had any money. I was living like really you know, crappy hotel. I mean, we travel in really crappy hotels in minor leagues. Like I stayed in a really crappy apartment and a lot of stuff happened, but I ended up at Rice playing football. And I've still, when I got to Houston, 
at Rice, it's not like I've I've never even been to like a really nice steakhouse or a really nice restaurant. I've never like ridden in like really nice cars or had really nice places to stay at still. Like I've, you know, I've never had a house, you know, and so I'm I was kind of like a Neanderthal kind of coming to coming to Rice. Like I didn't I you know, I've watched TV and stuff, but I, not like I had cable TV when I was growing up. I it wasn't not like I was around anybody that was really rich and successful. So just getting to know you because you were the, my scholarship sponsor. And I got really lucky that you were my scholarship sponsor. And we got to have one dinner with the, the compliance person was there. It was strictly nothing illegal there. And, and then but when hey, I got know, done you playing. Know, you know why Rice, uh, why the NCAA can look at this and say that, uh, that Rice doesn't cheat? Because if I was going to cheat, we'd win. Yeah, that's all yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all. Well, now I'm they saying. got the NIL stuff. Where you, uh, I know yeah, we need we yeah, need to figure yeah. out how to uh, how to, to do that. that. But no, it was great. We went to dinner, and this you know usually it's an 18 year old freshman going to dinner, and you have compliance there, and uh, we were kind of sitting there at dinner, and and you were really quiet. You were very shy. Your 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 wife Kylie, of course, is miss outgoing and chatting the whole thing, and. I uh, I remember turning to compliance going, you know, James played minor league baseball, so he's at least 21. Can we go next door to K's and get a beer? And you just kind of look like, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and compliance was just like, okay, I guess so. And uh, and we wound up going to uh, to K's. Yeah, the, yeah, it was, I, I remember that. And I remember like just simple things, like even after I graduated, like going out to dinner with you and going to like some nice restaurants and just uh just learn like even though I was 23 when I went to college and then 24 I guess I guess I was drafted when I was 25 so I was already married and you know when I went to college but I still never experienced a lot of like the the fancy things like even like going to you know valets and things like that were were new to me so just hanging around with you like just kind of watching you and like seeing how you're supposed to act in nice places and seeing how to do the menus and like I mean sounds silly but like even stuff to like that was was different unique and, and unique i'm gonna to i'm gonna slightly embarrass you here but you've already kind of fessed up to a lot mm. of it mm. you asked me one time what the 19 meant next yeah. to something on a menu because yeah. you'd never seen a menu that yeah. didn't have like dollar five size point, yeah, yeah. Five point yeah. Nine just nine. said 19 they, yeah they had, i was looking at all the numbers i didn't i didn't yeah like that's that i remember that as as well like the little things like that like just seeing how to order and like what you're supposed to look like and dress and not that I'm like a, a dummy or anything. I kind of like was aware of some of these things, but still haven't done it before. And I'm also very introverted. I don't, you know, like I don't, I'm not like my wife that goes around talking to everybody. And, but it's, that's also helped me be successful because I'm not really concentrating on going and talking to everybody and going on social media and like commenting on everything. Like I'm really, like when I decide I want to do something and I got a goal, like going to Rice and trying to be really good at football in schools, like that's all I'm doing. I mean, I'll have some entertainment here and there, but I'm, I'm, I don't need to be out talking but to anybody. I will say this to all the NFL owners out watching this podcast, because I'm sure they all listen to <laughs> yes, Chuck Yates yes. needs a job. The the podcast is, I will say this, you are an introvert, but when you're sitting at the table and you start talking, everyone shuts up and listens. Remember the, uh, the dinner uh, I had at my house where all the guys came over and we were making steaks because Kim and the kids were up in Telluride. Yeah, and uh, and you came over for that. I remember uh, we were all sitting around, and everybody maybe had one too many glasses of wine, and blow hard, and talking. And you started talking. Everybody just shut up. So that, that's yes. I guess you command advantage. the room. Yeah, yes, I'm also pretty cynical a lot of times, just with people and just observing things and seeing people not being the best types of people. So I don't really 
try to reach out to too many people and try to get a bunch of relationships, not deep relationships with certain people. Cause I'm just, just to kind of seeing throughout what I see around, I'm just seeing that that may not go well for me down the road. So I just stick to what I do and my wife and my kids. And I, you know, if it was like NFL owner is listening though, it's not like I'm, you know, I don't enjoy talking to people and, but it's, I just don't, when I find people that I, that I like though, that I think are good people, then okay, I'll open up and talk to you and get a relationship. But other than that, I'm really just, I mean, I guess it probably sounds that people listen like boring or whatever, but I'm probably am boring to most people, but I'm also focused on what I'm trying to do and try to be good at just a certain amount of things, not everything, just a couple of things I want to be really good at. So tell me the quick story about being at Rice, where you played, how many positions did you play in a game? Was they say it? seven, but I mean, I don't know exactly what it was, but the, the, the best way, the, when I came to Rice, I was 23, I was married. I've luckily got a scholarship somehow and they gave me a scholarship to play defense, even though I played quarterback as a kid, but I was like, okay, whatever, I'll take anything. Like it's Rice University and I get an opportunity to play college football. But I learned from playing minor league baseball and getting fired from that. And really that's, you know, that you're thinking like I'm 18 years old at Azel High School, no money, mom passed away, all that stuff. And then I go play minor league baseball for four years. I'm thinking I'm going to be a big leaguer and an all-star and, you know, it didn't work out. I couldn't throw strikes and I was, I was a pitcher, couldn't throw strikes. And you learn a lot, you know, that's, I'm 18 to 20. I think I was done playing at 22. You know, I'm 22 years old and I've already failed at a, at a completely career. You know, I've, I've based that, uh, my career, I got fired from a career, and I can never do that again. It'll never happen again at 22 years old. So you learn a lot of valuable stuff with that. You know, you're 22, and you're like, okay, I screwed that up. Like, I didn't make it to the big leagues. And that's another thing that just completely changed. I mean, not changed, but it, that, that's a big motivation for me. Is like, okay, I, I got fired from a career, and I can't even do that career anymore. They don't even want me. I can't even do it. And so when I went to Rice, I was like, there is no, like when I was writing you that letter, I meant it. Like there's nobody going to outwork me. I promise you. And you can ask anybody that I played with at Rice, any of the coaches, like there's nobody that did like in the entire country. I mean, I was a almost borderline, like crazy person in a good way though. I mean, I was, I was focused and nobody's going to outwork me and there was nothing. And I was so leaving baseball. It was, I'm going to have no regrets whatsoever in anything else I do, whatever I did. Once I decide this is what I'm doing, and I have a worthwhile goal of this thing, like nobody's gonna outwork me because of what happened in baseball and other stuff in my life. But so I'm not gonna have any regrets when I go to Rice and I'm not gonna take a lot of shit from anybody because baseball wise, I just felt like, you know, I was, and I'm not gonna worry about what everybody else is doing. Baseball, I thought I was, you know, the regrets I had getting fired from baseball, I felt like I could have worked harder and I kind of listened to too much, even coaches. Like I was trying to do exactly what they told me. And I'm saying a long story, but just talked about why I played so many positions at Rice. But the, I was, you know, that I've heard the two worst players that you can coach are the players that, and it's really stuck with me. The player doesn't do anything you say, as you know, he doesn't. Obviously, that's not a good guy to coach. And then the player that does everything you say exactly. Yeah. And I was that guy. I, was, I did everything they said exactly, and it wasn't good for me. Like you know, you sometimes coaches aren't necessarily telling you exactly what you need. Like you know better than anybody else. And so when I went to Rice, I was. Not being disrespectful or anything, it's like I'm gonna do what I do, and I'm gonna be respectful and learn everything. But I'm not gonna, if I don't think it's gonna be good, I'm not gonna tell them. But I'm not doing that. I'm doing what I know is gonna be good, and and I'm definitely not worried about what the hell anybody else is doing. I don't care what. I don't care if any of these 18 year old college kids, and I'm 23. Like I I, I don't give. I don't care less what a freshman in college is doing or a sophomore. Like 
I don't care. I'm here to play football. I'm here to win and be really good at school because I'm here to play football, but I might as well be good at school. I'm, I'm kind of joking there, but I was yeah. like, yeah. And so, you know, you probably asked my teammates when I was at Rice, like they probably thought I was standoffish and, but I wasn't a bad teammate, but I just, I didn't care what they were doing. Like I, I knew they were 18. I'm 23. Like I don't, I'm not going out to your parties. I'm not going to hanging out with you unless it's, you know, unless, unless we're going to work out right. or go study the playbook or do school stuff. Like, and so when I get, so when I start playing, I start off at defense and then they move me to quarterback. Long story, but I started off at defensive end at Rice from, and I played all spring at defensive end during the spring. And then I talked to coaches into moving to offense because I, I feel like I had to like campaign to, to then move to offense, even though I would have played defense if they wouldn't have let me. And then we had some injuries on defense. So then they let me play defense one game. And just simple things like, you know, I'd be on the sideline during practice and they'd be punting the ball. And we, we'd be working on punt return. And I was like a freshman. I wasn't on punt return. So I'm just observing, or I wasn't a starter. I'm just observing. And we had a guy that wasn't catching punts very well. In the games, he would like muff them. And we, we, you know, we sucked early on my freshman year. And I, and I was just watching it. I'm just, you know, as a 23-year-old college player, and I'm seeing this guy not catch the punt. And I'm a, you know, I'm defensive end quarterback. Now I'm quarterback and I'm, and I'm just like, screw this. I'm not letting us not catching punts beat us. So I just go out there and start standing in line and start just catching punts, even though I was playing quarterback at the time, just kind of just, you know, like getting in there and just showing them I could catch it. And the coaches saw me catching it. And eventually they just put me in at punt return. It's not like they asked me to do it. I just went out there and did it. And like everything, like snapping, I was like, well, I can, I can snap. So I, I would be like the backup snapper or like holding on field goals. I was like, I can do that. I just, cause I just wanted to win so bad. I, I was willing to do anything. So I, you know, like anything they said to do or position wise, I'd ball, I'd be like, I can do that. Like receiver. I was like, I can do that. I'll, I'll play receiver. And then they, they put me out there, let me practice. And I ended up being good at it. And, and so I did all, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so that's why I played so many wide receiver, I played running back just cause I can do that. Like I started going out to, when I was playing defensive end in the spring, we had, some in summer we had seven on seven and we would go to like Sam Houston and play them. And I was a defensive end in college, but I would talk to like Chase Clement, our quarterback, and I would find out when they were going, even though I was a defensive end, I would just go with them as a defensive end just to watch. And generally what would happen is we'd go out there to these seven on seven, just summer workouts and somebody wouldn't show up. Like the running back wouldn't show up. So then I'm the only guys there, even though I'm a defensive end. So they just, I go out there and play running back even though I don't know anything about running back in seven on seven and just, just showing the players and there's no coaches even out there. I'm just showing the players that I can run, I can catch, I can throw, I can do things offensively. So I, I got to play running back sometimes in seven on seven because nobody showed up. And then, so the quarterback chase started seeing that. And then I would go out and do some receiver stuff because we needed some, some guys were getting tired. Even though I was a defensive end, I just be out there run, running routes. And then finally we got to, uh, after at the end of summer, they kind of watched me throw and let me move to offense, but I was playing defensive end the whole time. But long story, but the reason why I played so many positions in college is because I was, I did not want to lose. And like I said, I was literally going to have no regrets and nobody's going to work me. And I was not, I was not, I was not afraid to like get out of my comfort zone and like go do things that maybe weren't comfortable to me, but if it was going to help us win, I thought I could be good at it or better than who the guy that was doing it at the time. I just did it. And then I made it, you know, like, like the old adage, like, Make them tell you no. Just yeah. say, go do something, and then they'll tell you no, or they'll say, okay, you're pretty good at that. Because, I mean, it, wasn't it – was it Southern Miss? Was that, was that the, the, the famous game that got reported? Oh. Could you 
had a sack as defensive end. You scored a rushing touchdown, a receiving touchdown. You may have even thrown one too. You returned a punt. You returned a kickoff. You because you were the wildcat quarterback yeah. too. Yeah, that's when definitely it, what started. What started my football. You know, like being a football player and eventually getting to play in the NFL. And now I'm coaching in the NFL. But it's really from that Wednesday night game where early on in the, we were like 0 4, 0 5 or something. We weren't very good. I really wasn't getting to play a lot. As I was a true freshman. I played defensive end in the spring. And then I went to quarterback during the fall. And all I was doing was just wildcat quarterback. So they weren't really putting me out there a lot, which is, you know, understandable. Like, but we got to Wednesday night. We were playing Southern Miss and, now, as a coach, I'm assuming like the coaching staff just said, hey, let's just put this guy out there and let him play. So they finally started letting me play. And I did my quarterback stuff. I started playing some wide receiver stuff, some running back. I was on the punt team. I was a punt returner. I was, and then I got to play defense that game because we had uh, some injuries on the defensive line. And a story about that was like the, the, that week, like leading up to, Southern Miss, I've been, so I played defensive end all spring and then I didn't get the quarterback until fall camp. So, and then we're like in game five or six. So I haven't done defensive end this entire time in fall camp or anything. But like the day before the game, Coach Bailiff was like, hey, do you remember that defensive end? And the defensive coordinator was asking me. And I was like, yeah, I remember everything. Just because, I, I mean, I really didn't, but I was like, I'm just showing them how confident I was that I can do it. Right. And they said, okay, here's your wristband thing. And I did like a, the morning of or the night before, like I did, we did like walkthroughs of defense, a couple of defensive end plays. And, and I was just so confident that I, I could do it. And I had the, when I had the wristband on in Southern Miss, I was playing quarterback and I let me do some receiver stuff. I scored a touchdown as a quarterback. And then every time we got on defense, you know, I was an offensive player and I get, most guys would probably be like, oh man, I hope they don't put me a defensive end. But I would walk, I would stand behind the defensive coordinator every drive, like just trying to get him to put me in the game. And finally, it was like a little bit later in the game. We had a couple injuries or something. And they're like, all right, James, you're in. So I just, you know, took off, went in a defensive end. And I think I played five plays. I had, had a sack, like a half a sack. I had a tackle for loss. Like I did a really good job at defensive end for only like the five plays I played. But it was, and that's when it, it was, uh, that's when it kind of, because then I go to the cafeteria at Rice the next day. And I'm not thinking anything of it. I'm like, okay, we played, we won. We finally, we won the game on Wednesday night against Southern Miss. And we had, you know, we have school Thursday. So I'm like studying, trying to get ready for school on Thursday. And then I go to school the next day at Thursday, even though we didn't get back super late. And then I go into the cafeteria at Rice and like everybody stands up and like gives me like a standing ovation as I walk in. And I'm, I'm like, just flabbergasted. I didn't recognize how well, how crazy that was. Like you're not supposed to be able to play quarterback and score a touchdown and sack the quarterback in a college football game, Division One college football game. So everybody was like, like noticing me and like the, for, for the first time. And then after that, I kind of took off and started getting a lot of opportunities. But it's uh, looking back now, as an old, you know, 37 now, and as a coach, like it's really, I'm really proud of like my attitude. You know, like that's really hard to do as a any at any age to be that type of guy that's like put me out there, let me play defensive end, like just not being afraid. And now I have kids that are 12 and eight. Like that's, I'm trying to get that mindset with them to like, you know, be that, you know, that dog mentality, that tough guy. Like you're not afraid of anything. You're not afraid to get out of your comfort zone and the confidence that that takes to do that stuff. No, that's right. Cause I, I've, uh, so your biggest fan on the planet has always been Sarah Yates, yeah. my, the, <laughs> the middle child. And, and 
you know what? Next time you start talking, don't mind me. I'm gonna go to uh, I'm gonna go to uh, my iPhone to see if I can find the picture. But you know, the funny thing about about Sarah Yates is, I mean, you were big and muscular and quiet, and you'd come into the house and you'd sit down, and Sarah Yates would just pop herself in your lap. And she would always, you know, what do you want to do? I want to go see Mr. Casey play. I want to go see James Casey uh, and all that. But that that's one of the things I always tell Sarah about, because Sarah's going to rule the world one day. I don't know if it's for good or for evil. I don't know that yet, but I know she's going to do it. And I always tell her that. It's like, look, you got to get out of your comfort zone. If you're not, you're not growing, you know? And so, yeah. That's, yeah. With And to this day, of course, I remember Sarah being little and like coming up and talking to me. And to this day, that's the only kid that's ever like not been like afraid of me, like wanting to come up and talk to me. Like, it's not like I'm a mean guy. I'm, I'm never going to do you know anything mean to a kid or anything like that. But I guess just the way I look and I'm not the most bubbly of people. Like when I'm just walking around, I guess the way my face looks or something like kids have been all kids are just terrified of me. But she was the one kid that hasn't been afraid of me so she is going to probably rule the world just because she's yeah. not scared of you know somebody like me <laughs> she's walking not around. scared yeah. of james Casey. the other great sarah yates line because she i mean like totally she wasn't afraid of you at all y'all were walking i don't know if you remember this y'all were walking you and kylie each each of y'all had one of sarah's oh, I remember. Yeah. arms and y'all were swinging her yeah. as y'all were walking down to the car mm-hmm. and sarah looked up at y'all and said y'all should have children because we're wonderful yeah we're great <laughs> i definitely remember that and we do now. We got I got a twelve year old and an eight year old and it two boys. It's uh they're just you know, they're fighting each other all the time, but it's the most rewarding thing that you can do is have those kids and just see them grow up and hopefully they end up being good people and it's frustrating though too, like as a because they're both big baseball players right now and they're on really good teams in Cincinnati. But, you know, telling my story of football and NFL and minor league baseball and wanting them to be even better than me, and that's the expectation. Like the expectation is for my oldest son, Cannon, to be a first-round draft pick and to play in the big leagues and be an all-star. And same thing with my youngest son, to get a college scholarship. It's like, I'm not the type of parent that's going to be like, oh, if you don't play, if you don't get a scholarship, I mean, of course, I'm. A, if you don't get a scholarship, okay, that's fine. You have, a, have to have a backup plan, but which is probably counter to what every other parent says. But my wife's the same way. It's like, we are working to get a college scholarship and to play in the big leagues or to play in the NFL. Like, that is your goal. And that's, you need to believe it and you need to expect that to happen. And just they're young and they're kids, you know, but I'm and I'm sure I was like, I don't remember what I was like that age, but I'm sure I was similar. But trying to get, you know, to and I'm like the one person, you know, as dad, you know, they don't listen to dad. But I'm talking through to them about the mindset that you need as a pitcher that I wasn't good at. But I know what it what it takes because of how bad I was. Like, I know I learned it as a football player. The mindset you need as a hitter, the mindset you need in football of just talking to the kids, my boys and trying to get them to to hopefully get that the mindset that I had that I have now and that I had when I was at Rice to try to get them in that mindset early on so they can, you know, really take off and be good. No participation trophies no, in the yeah, Casey household. No, it's I not like okay. That. It's not okay either. Like I, I have a shirt that says it's not okay. And I tell them I'm, it's never okay. Nothing is okay. Like not that I'm being mean to everything, but I'm not, you know, like if they fall down, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say, are you okay? If I know it's not a bad injury, right. like, I've been tough on them, so they're probably either going to be like, but I mean, I'm a loving father. I'm not like a yeah. crazy person, but trying to instill that toughness that it takes. Cause that's probably the thing that I'm, I really pride myself on and that I'm 
probably most proud of as, a, as an athlete is that I felt like I was a really tough guy. Like I didn't miss any games in college, even though I was playing all those positions. I only missed like four games in NFL, played fullback, played special teams. Like I pride myself on being a really tough person. Like I'm not, you know, these little minor injuries and stuff, I'm going to play through them and tough mindset wise. But even as little kids, like if they fell down, I would not ask if they're okay. I would just look at them and say, get up. You know, like they'll, you know, because if they fall down and you ask them if they're okay, then they're thinking they're supposed to be hurt. Right. And, and they, then, start and they get attention. Yeah. It's like they're, you're almost like coaching them to be hurt all the time. Yeah. I would flick them wherever it hurt. If they said <laughs> when they were little, they would, and I knew it wasn't a real injury. Right. Yeah. And they would fall down and they'd start crying about their shin or something. I'd say, hey, where's that? Where's the hurt? Let me see it. Let me see it. Let me see it. And then I would just flick it really hard. Just to, and I, when I knew they weren't right. training yeah. them to, okay, if you're hurt, you better really be hurt. Because if you're not, like, I'm just going to make sure it hurts. Right. And to train them to have a killer instinct, too. Like, not literal killer instinct, but, like, hopefully when they get older, they're kinda, they'll kind of have that mindset. If they see somebody hobbling around, but they know that person's not really hurt, they're going to attack in, in sports-wise. Well, yeah, no, and, I mean, grit is, grit is the characteristic that defines success in yeah. this world. I mean, it's not intelligence because somebody can always be smarter than you. It's not good looks because somebody can always be better looking than you are it really is grit yeah grit like determination too a little bit i mean yeah. same kind of thing but i was thinking about this just last year of nfl football wise like and i was i watched my kids play baseball there's certain people that they just find a way to get the job done they may not be the most talented they may not you know but they'll they will they find like tight end wise there's certain guys that just find a way to catch the ball they find a way to get their block done and i was just you know as a coach Anybody can coach the playbook, but I'm trying to coach these guys on mindset, you know, motivation, understanding of why they're doing certain things, Take, you know, obviously technique, but that's what a lot of it comes down to me. Like when you're talking about a tight end, as I'm coaching these guys, it's about the determination, the grit that they need to get that job done. And certain guys are just have that mindset. Like I am not going to get beat. I am not going to get beat. I'm going to find a way to get this job done. And it may not be the perfect technique, but I'm going to have the mindset. This is any job. You know, yeah. I'm going to have the mindset that I am going to be successful. I'm going to win this battle, but I'm going to, it's not going to be false confidence. I'm going to put the work in to be, to get to that point, to be successful. But when it gets to game time, like just the grit and the determination to find a way to get the job done. Yeah. It's only certain guys have that though. It's very rare. Like even NFL wise. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting when you, you know, everybody talks about, you know, prime time players and they're guys that just show up when the lights are the brightest and all uh, I saw a, a study one time in baseball and it set up the set up kind of the premise of, you know, seventh inning or later people coming to bat where they're down by one run, whatever the premise was that you would say is a clutch situation. And they looked, they ranked everybody's statistics. What was interesting is there truly weren't clutch players there were just good players and bad players. And so the, the guy that hits 350, two outs in the bottom of the seventh when you're down one run in the first inning with nobody on hits 350. There, were, there was one major league player that had like a 250 batting average. And for some weird reason, late in games, he hit like 350. But outside of that, it was who are the clutch players? It's Derek Jeter. Well, he's good all the time. Good, and, that, yeah. and that goes to your point of, guys, you can't just turn it on, you know, you got to put the work in. You got to do all that. And those guys like that, I'm sure, just like Jeter, like they're they're good because they, you know, they they obviously talented. 
but there's only that's only gonna take you so far. You got to have a baseline, but it's just the mindset they have, the determination, the grit. Like they are gonna be successful. Michael Jordan, yeah. Kobe Bryant. Yeah. I mean, they say even in practice, yeah. those guys wouldn't take a moment yeah. off. Yeah, they're all they're always on. They're always every like baseball because my kids play baseball now. I'm trying to get the mindset to my kids. Like every at bat is like the end of the world. It's like your last at bat that you're alive. That's how yeah. you got to treat it. You got to be like dialed in, focused, not, you know, your most confident guy out there. That guy's not going to strike you out or you're going to barrel the ball up and hit a line driver. If you're pitching, like that is your mound. You are going to strike this guy out. Like, and it's got to be like that at all times. You may have thrown three great innings in the fourth inning. You can't go out there and, and feel like you're confident. I mean, you or feel like you got it made. You're going to be confident, but you got to keep that same focus at all times. Like, First inning or last inning, like you're talking about, it's they're always on. So, so when they get in the when they get in the in the big situations, it's no different. They're always like that. Yeah. Every every play is like fourth and inches to them. So you're a Texas guy. So you'll appreciate this because you know this isn't just athletics that it applies to. It applies to everything. Johnny Lee was playing the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo back in the early oh, yeah, 80s, yeah. right? And he got sick. And the rodeo committee sitting there going, you know, the the agent calls the night before, hey, I don't know if Johnny's going to be able to play tomorrow. He's sick. He ate something, whatever it was. So they said, all right, t call us the next morning. Phone call the next morning. And the, the rodeo committee sitting there going, well, what are we going to do? Johnny Lee can't play. And there was a guy that said, you're not going to believe this, but I was in a bar in, you know, pick a spot, Austin, Central Texas, somewhere. There were 14 people in that bar that night. But I saw this singer that was just one of the greatest singers I've ever seen. The guy went up there, put on the greatest show and all. I think we ought to go get him. And the guy was like, the committee's like, well, we don't have a choice. That sounds great. George Strait was invited to play the Houston Rodeo. And that was what made George Strait George Strait because he was a, he was a no-name he filled in at the last second. They literally sent a private plane for him, flew him back. He didn't even have a time for a sound check. He just walked out on stage. He was George Strait, and he blew up after that, right? He became the biggest country singer. And I tell my kids that all the time. What if he half-asses that bar show with 14 people in there? You know, what if he gets up there and screws around and doesn't give it his all like he did? That guy never would have put him on the stage at the rodeo. That is an unbelievable story. Yeah. I'm going to have to look that one up. Yeah, it's actually that, true. Yeah, that look sounds at the, Google Johnny Lee, yeah. George Strait, Houston Rodeo, a, yeah, and there's a Wikipedia page on it. Because I'm going to be telling that story now when yeah. I'm talking to you my need, players. You do need to yeah. fact check yeah. me. You've yeah, known gonna, me long yeah. enough to know you yeah. got to fact check me. I'm going to trust so. but verify that one. But there that is a, that's, I like that. That's an amazing story. And just the when he gets to the rodeo, if you, you know he's playing that small bar, and he gets to the rodeo, and he's able to perform and put on a show. You know, like just the – 50,000 people, yeah. 60,000 In his people. mind, he's always on. You know, he's yeah. always. My wife's going to love that story, too, because she loves George Strait. Well, I hope which, it turns out to be true, but <laughs> yeah. it is a, yeah. it is close enough. James Casey, you were cool to come on, man. This is like a dream come true. The, I've, I, I've, I've been your – we said Sarah was your biggest fan. I hate to nudge her aside, but uh, I've always been your biggest no, fan. No, I'm a big fan of yours, too. You've helped me out along the way and been very fortunate to get to know you when I was in college. And, now, I mean, I was thinking on the drive down, it's – that was 2007, so I mean it's been 15 years that we've known each other, which is sounds crazy. I still feel like I'm 21 in my so, mind, but so let's go do this. We're gonna go get dinner. I'm gonna pay for dinner because I finished second in my fantasy football league <laughs> last year, 
And it was all based on you telling me Joe Mixon was yeah. going to have a great year. Yeah. You said Joe yeah. is going to crush it yeah. this year. Yeah. So I drafted him in the third round, and uh, he led me to a victory. Right. Well, he's so going to have even better, um, even better year next year, Joe. I'm going to okay, keep, keep like the that. streak going. Yeah, because for my job and for for our sake and our team, like he, he's going to be even better this next year. There we go. Well, thanks, thanks so much for inviting me on. Absolutely. Absolutely.